When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge, now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. On this edition of our podcast, I'll be joined by Phil Martelli, longtime St. Joe's head coach. He was relieved of those duties and quickly was gobbled up by Michigan. He's going to work under Juwan Howard, feeling revitalized, re-energized. Uh, we're going to discuss how that all came about, who helped him, and what it has meant to him here in the short time that he's now at Michigan. Also, we'll be joined by Northwestern head coach Chris Collins, one of many coaches, uh, well over 30, uh, who is taking his team overseas this month uh, on a trip that's going to be critical to really finding out a lot about his team for the upcoming season. Uh, so we're going to discuss that with Chris Collins. Also, uh, how the Wildcats handled that historic season a couple of years ago when they got to the NCAA tournament for the first time, what happened after that. And now trying to sort of reboot in Evanston. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Chris Collins is taking Northwestern overseas. Uh, on NCAA.com this week, you'll see an article of me talking to a number of different schools and what their obje- objectives are uh, in their overseas trips. Uh, and also, most importantly, uh, we've got a poll for you at March Madness for you to uh, chime in and uh, really contribute to uh, what I think will be an entertaining uh, follow over the next uh, week or two. Uh, we built a bracket, as we like to do at March Madness. Uh, we got the team of the decade. So uh, we want you to contribute. We've got voting going on. One verse 16, two verse 15, eight, nines, the whole gamut. Uh, and look, here's the way we built this and put it together. We started with the year 2010. That's the year Duke beat Butler in the Final Four. And then, you know, that it's that 10-year period that will basically end this season, uh, but it's, you know, including Virginia National Championship last year. So 2010 to 2019, all those championships, all those Final Fours, all those teams that advanced to the Elite Eight and the Sweet 16. So that's the period we're looking at. How I see to them was whether or not you won a championship. If you got to a Final Four, if you advanced to the Sweet 16, got to the Elite Eight, we put together some of the best five players Maybe though that uh, contributed more than one season. Uh, I know there's been some omissions and already some criticisms about who was and wasn't in part of that starting five. Uh, maybe they had a great Final Four, but maybe overall they were not as much of a major factor. So uh, I know there's going to be a lot of debate and digesting all that. So, but that's what we want. We want you to look at this and really, you know, contribute through uh, comments criticisms, 
But more than anything, we want you to vote. And I think we'll get a lot of that because right off the bat, we started on Monday with a one versus 16 matchup of Villanova versus UMBC, who clearly was the best 16 that we've had in this past decade because they won a game and knocked off Virginia two seasons ago. So enjoy that. I've got two good conversations here that I think you're going to find very entertaining, whether you're a fan of the game or a coach, player. Um, two interesting conversations with uh, two big names, uh, Phil Martelli and Chris Collins, that have been a part of college basketball for quite some time now. So I want to get to those. I want to talk to Phil Martelli first as part of the Michigan program, and then Chris Collins, because he'll end it talking about that Duke-Butler game in 2010, which is a good jumping-off point to you then after you're done with this podcast, going out and voting on our March Madness social media platforms for the various matchups that we've got in this bracket. All right? Enjoy uh, our podcast here, March Madness 365, here as we head into the dog days of August. But we're still talking hoops all year round. And joining me now here on March Madness 365, current Michigan associate head coach, Phil Martelli, former St. Joseph's head coach, and a long-standing member of the NABC and on a number of high-profile NCAA committees. Uh, Phil, great that your uh, hiatus was barely a few months, uh, and you're right back at it. So I want to go back to how this all started, your relationship with Juwan Howard, and how suddenly you're you know, at the University of Michigan. Take me through the, the infancy stages of when John Beeline went to the Cavs, uh, when that happened, what what did you think could happen with your candidacy potentially being at Michigan? Well, I would go even a little bit further back, Andy. When the coaches were going out in April, I had obviously put my ear to the ground and, you know, reluctantly, but my ear was to the ground as to possibilities in coaching and possibilities in the NBA, possibilities of going overseas possibilities of, of television right before the coaches went out, I put a call out to, and I'm not being a name dropper, but it was a, a who's who it was Jim Beheim and Jay Wright and, and Tom Izzo and John Calipari and even John Beeline. Um, and I was stating that an opportunity at a power five school to go into a role where I could make a difference uh, would be intriguing to me. And if they heard anything, I had not retired and I had not agreed to just do, and I don't mean it that way. I, I had not agreed just television was the only path that I could take. I, I needed to be in a gym. I needed to be on a team and I needed to be pursuing championships. That period came and went. Uh, I was The 76ers were very kind. Brett Brown was very kind in letting me uh, kind of embed with them. And on a Monday morning, uh, I got a call from John Calipari, asked me what I was doing, told him I was just trying to to shake as many trees as I could, and he told me to hang out that Juwan Howard wanted to speak to me. Juwan and I spoke on that Monday. He had not yet interviewed for the job at Michigan. That was going to be the next day. We discussed all kinds of things, how to interview, what would be important, and and we just really made a connection and his love for the for the school and his love for coaching uh he wasn't coming to be a figurehead he wasn't coming to be a, a rookie uh he was really going to be 
totally uh, engrossed by the job. Uh, I watched then. He took the interview on Tuesday, uh, communicated lightly by text because I know what that feels like, not knowing whether or not you get the job. When when the announcement's made on Wednesday, uh, with the help of John Perry, we started to put together uh, I's dotted and T's crossed, including uh, my dear friend Gino Oriama reaching out to um, Ward Manuel to say if this is something that he would support and, and if it was real. The middle of one of those nights, Andy, I woke up because I, I said, what do I really know about Juwan Howard? I mean, I knew he was Fab Five. I knew he was in the NBA for a long time. I knew he had two national championships, uh, two, two world championships. And I studied uh, and found out that he graduated a year after declaring early for the NBA draft. First person to do that. Meant, to graduate with his class, I should say. Right, graduated with his class. I read the motivation uh, with his grandmother. I kind of threw my hands in the air and said his first coach was Jim Lynham, who was uh, obviously a coach at St. Joseph's, a dear friend of mine. John Nash was the general manager that selected him, another friend of mine, St. Joseph's graduate. And then I read his personal bio about being married and and his joy is watching his sons play basketball. It started to come together and say, this is a match. That week on a Thursday, I took a call from Eddie Fogler telling me that I was being vetted uh, by many people in Michigan. Uh, I took a call from Stan Van Gundy, Jeff Van Gundy, Steve Fisher. The whole time I'm talking to uh, John Calipari, not hourly, but at least once in the morning, once in the afternoon, trying to put everything together and make sure that it was right. And the next week was Juwan's press conference. Uh, he and I talked, and it all seemed to be going in the direction. After the press conference, we talked, and, and then that following Sunday, we confirmed everything as in terms of you know who I would hear from and uh, years and dollars and things like that. And that led us into June, and uh, I've been on campus since June the 7th, and there hasn't been a day where I've sat and said, you know, I don't have anything to do. Uh, and it's not like, obviously, John Beeline was ultra successful, borderline Hall of Fame career. But Juwan is a better person than even advertised. And many discussed top five human beings in the NBA and things like that. And Howard Isley and Saudi Washington and Jay Smith. It's, it's a, just a remarkable opportunity. And it has allowed me to drive through the windshield and look through the windshield and not in the rearview mirror because, you know, you're still heartbroken that I'm not in Philadelphia for the first time in my life. I'm, I'm not in Philadelphia. I'm away from my family. I have assistant coaches from St. Joseph's who have not landed on their feet. And um, eight or nine families where they either had, had transferred, felt that they had to transfer or did not come fulfill their commitment to St. Joseph's. So that part of it is, is still hard, but this opportunity and the day-to-day operation with this pursuit of excellence is just extraordinary. All right. So a couple of things. First of all, I love the fact that you talked so much about Cal because this is an aspect of Cal that uh, I don't think the general public fully grasps. No. no. Um, so let's dive a little deeper into that about his importance to you uh, personally 
and certainly in getting this job and getting right back up on your feet, you know, within, you know, less than two months of after, you know, clearly professionally, uh, one of the more devastating, you know, times in your life. Cal is a remarkable friend. Uh, he, he is, uh, he really is a lover of coaches. He has a remarkable way about him. And I've been connected with him since the days at UMass. You know, there, there were a number of people, like a number of people, including yourself, who reached to me frequently from the middle of March on. Guys that stood out, Fran Dunphy stood out, and, and John Calipari stood out, and Tom Izzo stood out, and they, they, there was always a, a contact from them. And Cal is is just top top of the list. It's just a um, I'll never forget, you know, what he's done for me and what he's done for my family. And as an aside, his his phone contains a, a text from my wife. She asked me for his number, and she sent him a text. She did not share it with me. Uh, he shared pieces pieces of it, and it would bring you to tears to know that that this guy that. You know, I was at the top of the profession, whether it's financially, Hall of Fame, whatever that would be. He really, truly, truly cared, as did many, many, many others. But Cal put this whole thing into motion. There's no doubt in my mind. So what's that like? Because I've experienced this as well, um, you know, a different, right. uh, you know, to, to some degree. Um, but what's it like, especially because you were the, at the top of an organization, of a school, you know, where – you dealt constantly with trying to help people get a job, get a scholarship, you know, do this, do that. I mean, you were getting hit constantly for decades and then suddenly it flips. Now suddenly you need help. You need to get in front of someone. You need to be patient during the process and having someone tell you, don't worry, you know, just, you know, talk to this person, talk to that person. We'll take care. But then you're sitting there during that time. You're not sure, you know, do they like me? Do they not like me? And, you know, suddenly, you know, you're in your 60s and, you know, you're having to think like that. Like, wait a minute. Um, you know, this is a weird change of, you know, roles for me. Well, what was that like where you had to sort of flip the script and suddenly you were in the position where so many other people have been, you know, looking for your guidance and your help? Well, it, it made me uh, fully cognizant of the fact that uh, doing for others is a major part of this job. And I, I've met, there were moments where I thought, well, maybe I didn't do this the right way. Maybe I should have, maybe I should have been more of a self promoter. Maybe I, but I realized that I've done it the right way. That wins mean a lot, but lives impacted mean more on a very, very personal level. Andy, I got a packet of information and one of the things that was in there was uh, don't expect that phone to ring on its own. If you're not out reaching and asking and thinking out loud and, you know, I, I can tell you now that, that I took a meeting with an online school that wanted to model a program after Grand Canyon. They wanted to start a program and I was going to be in on the ground floor of that. And had I just sat home and not, picked up the phone or, or, or answered the phone or been humble enough to ask for help, I'd still be sitting in outside of Philadelphia. I wouldn't be sitting in Ann Arbor. So um, you do have to do for yourself. Uh, 
But then when you get that opportunity, as I did for 34 years, I think you have to turn around and see who's, who can you extend a hand to. This is clearer to me today than it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago or even five years ago. We have to help each other, and, that, and that's really what coaching is about. Well, look, and I'm going to tell you, for those listening, this is a, and I've been preaching this for two years, I mean, this is a universal uh, aspect of any kind of job change, whether it's your doing or not, that how you treat people will ultimately, and how you exit, yes. I should say, also, will ultimately determine where you end up and how you end up. Uh, I am a believer in that 1,000%. Uh, it's a small world, especially these professions. They We think they're vast, but they're not. Everyone talks to everyone. And how you treat other people, it matters. And it matters on whether or not someone wants to help you, whether or not someone wants to talk to you, whether or not they're going to be genuine with you. And so clearly, you did that during your career. You were not a jerk. And, uh, you know, your passion, but your kindness and warmth came through where other people wanted to help you because I'm telling you in all these different professions, when something like this happens and you don't behave like that, even when you're on top, especially when you're on top, you know, we all are going to come down at some point and uh, you'll find out whether or not you were doing things the right way. Yeah. There's no question that the, the, uh, the emails, the text, even when I've been out recruiting the coaches that will just sit down and they'll, they'll say, to remind you about something that you did. And it, it it's not something that is in the f- forefront of my head. And I never did it thinking that I would be in this position. Uh, but I did it because it was right and it wasn't for show. And if I had that opportunity again, and I'm going to, I'm going to be very, very aware next spring of, people that are going to be in the position where they're being let go that, that I'm going to reach out and I'm going to encourage them to, to pick up the phone and not to be, be too proud to ask. Um, I think the other thing, Andy is, uh, and, and you and I had the conversation during your period of uncertainty is the devastation of your family and, and feeling so responsible to them and as you said, being patient, yeah, it's easy, not easy, but it, it was a mantra for me to be patient and everything. But at the same time, when your family's looking at you and saying, did this person call or did that person call? And almost like keeping a scorecard. And I had to just, I had to make sure that I was on my feet and I couldn't keep moving forward. And I can't minimize uh, what Brett Brown and the 76ers did because they got me back into a basketball mindset and not uh, a what was me kind of mindset where you could sit around and, and do it, do that too. So you've been standing during games for decades. Yes. Uh, yes. Not someone who sits, not a lot of coaches do sit, but you weren't someone who sat. I never sat. I never sat one possession in 24 years. I've not sat down in one possession for 24 years. And ironically over this past three or four days I've been thinking about what my posture has to be and we're going to talk about it I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but I'm not going to be this is Jawan Howard's team it's his program and it's it's his pursuit of of championships I will be with him and I will have his back every step of the way but I'm not going to overstep my bounds in terms of uh, quote-unquote being noticed yeah, one of the only differences between you and the Hawk was you weren't flapping your arms all the time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so um, 
in what way do you think, because uh, the practice court, it sounds clearly like he's given you a voice. You're not going to be the dominant voice, but you're going to have a voice. Um, but during games, because that's going to be the hardest transition, yep. how do you think you're going to sort of adjust to that secondary role? Uh, you don't want to dominate even the other assistants either. You don't, you know, no, I don't. You sort of have to play in this group um, and all play nicely and, and work, you know, uh, on what, where, you know, pick your spots to stand, pick your spots to talk and, uh, and, and not be, because I know as an, as a coach, I'm sure you didn't like assistants chirp, chirp, chirping in your ear, especially when you were younger all the time. No, not, that's not my, I, I think one voice is really, uh, as much as, as a player can handle. I, I'm, I'm feeling more like it's going to be a continuation of the practice floor with the players, uh, pointing out the things to the players and, and, um, Look, I think everybody has to manage a game and manage their bench their way. But I will have that opportunity to find my place. And I'm not nervous about that because uh, I know one thing that has happened over the seven or eight weeks is that as long as I am being heard, I don't have to be listened to on everything, but I do, I, I do feel I have a value in being heard in terms of what time to practice or how – scrimmaging over over uh, exhibition games all, all those kind of things that you know there's just a, a knowledge that I have and and um, and a confidence that I have not that my way is the only way and I'm learning as much as I as I can from Juwan and the Miami Heat and his experiences at Michigan and and Saudi and his experiences it's so it's it's a beautiful thing because every day I feel like I'm able to teach and every day I'm able to learn. And that's, that makes it a great day. All right. Last couple of things. First of all, not to diss, you know, the eight ten or St. Joe's, but what so far has been the <laughs> biggest difference in terms of the amenities at a place like Michigan versus St. Joe's? I, I only have one thing to tell you, Andy. I have only one thing to tell you. I was driving down the street one day, uh, and people will find this ironic because of my bald dome. I was trying to find a barbershop. I knew the location. I wasn't quite sure how to get there, and I drove down the street, and I looked to my right, and I realized that the band, the Michigan band, has their own practice facility. That's how big it is. So there's nothing else I could tell anybody. that you know, Whenever I've called home and people say, well, how big is it? I'll say, well, the band has their own practice facility. Enough said. How often did you get on a private plane to recruit? Uh, at St. Joseph's, never. How often so far uh, since you've been to Michigan? Twice. So four trips, coming and going twice. All right, that's still more than that. All right, so on the court, real quick, uh, your first impressions, especially the returnees, uh, to a team that I think has still the makings, despite all their losses, of being an NCAA tournament team next season. First of all, their their physical builds. Obviously, I'm not as aware of the demands, but uh, this team physique wise is is stunning. Uh, it's eye opening. Um, second thing is the respect of these players. They're they're begging to grow, and this is coming from the, they they worked for one of the great teachers in college basketball, in John Beeline. But but they love they love instruction. They love practice. Xavier is a, a point guard's point guard. John Teske is a is size is a, a big deal uh, with this team. Uh, I'm very impressed with their quest 
for knowledge, for improvement, and the joy with which they practice. And I will add this, the joy with which they're coached. Juwan Howard loves to be on the court during these individual uh, workouts, as does Howard Isley. It's remarkable. They've been there, done that in terms of the highest levels of basketball. But but the the four hours that we get a week from the NCAA, which is not celebrated enough, instead of knocking everything that they do, how about if we celebrate the idea that they've given us four hours to work with these players and to really teach the game of basketball? You know, we have some flaws, but we haven't really gotten – really into anybody in terms of, of teaching. We've really concentrated on their individual skills and a little bit of the team offense. But I get chills just thinking about having a chance to get on the court with these guys and watching these coaches coach. And, and Phil, because you mentioned it, I want to wrap it up here. I've talked a lot on this podcast about the recruiting calendar and the different things. So I don't want to get into that with this last question. But I want to get into that second week that went away because the coaches, if I'm not mistaken – we're all for that going away in July so they could be back on the court. Just enlighten me and our listeners of, of what the thinking was of that second weekend in July that went away this year and why. Well, the, the second week, uh, a lot of people were talking about it being dead space. You know, uh, just uh, opportunities where where you were kind of going all over the country. You had the first week where it was very concentrated. Uh, lots of talent, lots of opportunity for all levels of basketball, whether it was on the East Coast or the West Coast, or if you were chasing the sneaker teams in, in their championships. The second week, we're kind of uh, uh, off on tangents. People complained an awful lot about it. And when you factored in the calendar, you were going to leave again on Wednesday to, to recruit till Sunday. So when were you going to get this opportunity to work with your team? It was a little bit calmer this year. You could get back. You could spread your hours out over that week. And then, you know, as you said, we're, we're going to pick apart, but build it. We're not going to pick it apart and destroy it. We're going to pick it apart and we're going to build it so that the third week can become as uh productive as the first week is in, in in recruiting but yes coaches wanted to be and need to be on the court uh, with their players and if everybody's running all over the country piecemealing it in the second week it didn't make any sense phil as always awesome glad you're right back at it i know we're going to talk a ton glad to see you back in the big ten or in the big ten as well since i do a lot of big ten coverage throughout the course of the year First and foremost, Andy, uh, uh, I appreciate our friendship above and beyond your professionalism and how much you're doing for coaches and for the NCAA. But our friendship means the most to me, and I will always appreciate that. Thanks, Phil. All right, Andy. And coming up here on March Madness 365, my conversation with Northwestern's Chris Collins. We're going to talk about how the Wildcats had to rebound from a little bit of a dip after their historic season a couple of years ago. The fact that Chris was... On that staff, 10 years ago, it'll be 10 years this spring when Duke beat Butler in a remarkable ending to a Final Four where Gordon Hayward shot from uh, you know half court, almost went in and would have given Butler a historic victory at Lucas Oil Stadium over the Blue Devils. That and much more with Chris Collins. And now joining me here on March Madness 365, Northwestern head coach Chris Collins. Uh, the Wildcats uh, getting ready to embark on a foreign trip uh, that certainly comes at the right time with this program. Uh, 
later this month, uh, actually like a week and a half, uh, they'll be heading off to France and Italy. Uh, Chris, why is the timing right for taking a trip with this group? Well, it's just to be able to do this, um, you know, with our teams. It's such, you know, a lot of schools are going over year in and year out. And to be able to take our team over to Europe and to do it for us at this year is so, such a critical time in our program. We we just graduated six seniors. And of our 11 scholarship guys, eight of them are freshmen and sophomores. You know, whether with a couple transfers mixed in, big freshman class, a lot of sophomores on the roster that are trying to make that jump uh, from, you know, being role players to kind of be an integral members of the, of the team and key guys and just a great couple weeks for for team bonding we'll get some good competition over there play some games but just gives us more time to get to know each other kind of build our team and uh, i'm excited about the the future of this group you know I, I think we got a lot of young pieces i think we got to keep this group together continue to develop and i think this is a group that you can see over the next couple years you know become a very competitive team in the big 10 and what do you hope if there are a couple of things that you really want to learn uh, on this trip about this team, maybe even specific positions or, uh, you know, a, a shift in any style of play? I mean, what do you want to mostly learn uh, when this trip is over? Well, just to see how the, the, all the guys kind of fit together, how the pieces fit, so to speak. Uh, the, there's there's a lot of young guys that, that are bringing new, new things to the table. Our, our freshman class, we have three freshmen coming in that I'm really high on Robbie Barron, Boo Booey, Jared Jones. We redshirted a big guy, Ryan Young last year. So he'll be a redshirt freshman. I think all four of those guys getting an opportunity to, to play as young players. I'm really anxious to see the, the, the development of our sophomore class, you know, Miller cop and Pete Nance uh, were two guys that, you know, we recruited to, to eventually become impact players in our program. And uh, those guys showed signs last year as freshmen, uh, Pete Nance kind of got off, you know, having mono in the middle of the year, kind of derailed his freshman year, but he's had a really good spring and an off season. And I'm anxious to see kind of the the jump that those two guys can make as sophomores. And then uh, our older guys, AJ Turner, Anthony Gaines, uh, their ability now as juniors and seniors to to step forward in leadership and and help a young group. So uh, it's just going to be, uh, you know, for me, it's a lot of unknowns. It's a great group of guys. They're working hard. We're trying to figure out what we have, and and I think this trip will be really good for us to to kind of play games, throw some different lineups on the floor, and, and give us a chance to see what we're working with heading into the fall. You can't just manufacture experience or leadership. You lost a lot with with Law and Pardon, Vic Law and Derek Pardon. Can you tell at this juncture, just in these few practices, who has emerged or could emerge as taking over a leadership role? Well, it's still a work in progress, and I want all the guys. We, we had such an influential senior class, like you said, those two guys in particular, Derek Parton and Vic Law guys, who were a staple of our program after over the last four years and, you know, helped us, you know, get to that first NCAA tournament and win a game and, and change the culture of, of basketball around here for the better. So, you know, now it's up to these new guys to step forward. And, and I like I mentioned, the two guys before, A.J. Turner, fifth-year senior, been in our program now for three years uh, played a lot of minutes last year was a key guy for us Anthony Gaines going into his junior year again I thought he made a big step last year from his freshman to sophomore year you know I think those two guys in particular are, are two that I, I see can really step forward as leaders
years. And I want that sophomore class to kind of to take that on as well. You know, Pete Nance, Ryan Greer, Miller Cop, uh, those three guys that have now had a year under their belt. They understand uh, what we expect in this program. And having eight new players, you know, those those five guys as, as returnees are going to be really big to, to kind of set the tone and, and show those guys what we expect and how, how we want to do things. So, you know, no one's making excuses here, but I, I was actually – uh, as you know, I was in Evanston uh, this past weekend and and talking to some relatives about like sort of what, you know, they're, they're definitely following Northwestern and they say, oh, what happened after they won? And and, and one of the things I say uh, that maybe it wasn't fair, but I think there was truth in it. Now that we've had a year removed from it uh, of the momentum of as great as the new uh, facility or, or redone facility is, you know, the, the fact that you had to play at Allstate right after getting to the tournament for the first time, winning a game and all that momentum. Can you look back to some degree and say that some of it got derailed or halted because you weren't on campus, because the students and everyone wasn't really able to sort of embrace that same group right after such a euphoric season and postseason? Well, I definitely think it was a factor. Uh, there's no question about it, uh, and especially in a league like the Big Ten, when you got to go play in East Lansing and you got to go to Assembly Hall in Bloomington and and play at places like Nebraska and and Minnesota and and obviously Illinois and and you go down the list. I mean, those venues, the Cole Center up in Madison. You know, I thought we had worked very hard with some success and and our climb to really have a great home court advantage uh, as we were. Building building things up and then you know it's all going to be for the best in the long run but but having a year where we had to play at a neutral site so to speak 45 minutes away and uh, away from campus um, it definitely hurt some of our home crowds some of our home court advantage and you know again like you said there there's no excuses to be made but and now that we're in our new stuff it's it's all going to be for the better but you know I feel bad that you know that that particular year that group you know didn't get a chance to, to kind of have that true home schedule and have that home crowd maybe help us through when we were going through some tough times this year and, and uh, you know we weren't able to have the level of success that we had the year before but you know I think you learn from everything you learn from your successes you learn from your failures um, there's certainly things along the way if, if you if you have do-overs there's things you might have done different things changes you've made but you know I think now it's it's about a new a new group of guys it, I'm excited I'm refreshed about having this new group eight new players there's a new energy we're opening up a brand new practice facility in about a month um the new arena we do have is is fantastic and and we had some good crowds this year that that really gave us that boost and uh, i'm excited about the future and and i feel like once we kind of get back where we want to be i I think all of us me being at the the the, the head of the line we're going to be better prepared and better equipped to handle the success better and and maybe go through some of the human nature trappings and pitfalls that you can only go through with experience. And so um, I think you live and you learn. And, and, you know, we had that great year. We got to the tournament. We saw what it was like. We won a game and um, took a little bit of a step back um, the last couple of years with, with where we want to be record-wise. And, and now it's up to us to, to get back to work and kind of build ourselves back and, in a really hard league. I mean, as you know, I mean, our league is as strong top to bottom as it's ever been. Uh, great programs, great coaches. And, um, you know, we know we have our work cut out for us to get back to where we want to be. Chris, how would you compare these challenges? Because 
coaches before you had never been able to cross that threshold, climb that mountain of getting to the tournament. You did that. You'll no one will ever take that away from you. It's historic, and there's going to be an unbelievable legacy off of that. So that was accomplished. But now you've got the second phase of getting back to that point of this belief that, you know what, that wasn't a one-off. We can be a consistently good program that every once in a while is right there or is, you know, in the mix. Uh, I don't think anyone expects you to be, you know, competing for a national championship every year. I mean, but at the same time, you want to be in the mix. And that's all realistic and doable. How, how would you compare the, the two challenges? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly when I first got here, we we had that common goal that we all shared that it was the elephant in the room that was thrown in our face all the time. Like, you know, are you ever going to go to the tournament? So anytime any kind of individual goals sufficed, surfaced, whether it be in in a player's mind, in a coach's mind, we always had that one thing that we could hold our hat on to. Like, we got to we got to do this. It's never been done. You know, we got to We got to cross this bridge and um, we were able to do that it was incredible I'll, I'll be forever indebted to those group of players that rallied together and did it and the work that we all put in and you know I think I, it just goes back to my goal when I first came to Northwestern was I mean I knew the tournament was a big thing and, and we had to get there it was part of the process but you know my dream for this program was to, to be a program like you described you know where, where it's not just one team that did it you know can we be a program where year in and year out we compete for the NCAA tournament where we are in that top seven, top eight, you know, in the big 10, which is going to be what it takes uh, to get to the tournament and, and be competitive at the highest level. And, you know, I think I've learned a lot along the process. I I don't think my fire is burning any less than it ever has been. Um, You know, my competitive juices are flowing and in a lot of respects now um, we're even more motivated because we did get there. Um, We had a couple tough years on the heels of that. And now, you know, I think everybody's really hungry to to get back to that to that point, get back to that postseason level of play, and and I'm excited to to do that, and I'm I'm hungry, and and you say you were on campus recently, you saw like there's been an amazing commitment here from the administration, um, you know, over 400 million dollars in athletic facilities where we've gotten a brand new arena, a brand new practice facility, they're upgrading, you know, everything we're doing because they they want to compete they want to invest they want to be committed and it makes me that much hungrier and that much more excited to do my part and and produce a product here um that that everybody wants to see and so i'm looking forward to kind of like you said it is a second phase it's a new chapter and i'm I'm anxious to see where we can take it and and i'm confident when we get back to that level that we're going to be more equipped and better prepared to keep it at that level this go around you know chris i mean for decades uh i think everyone wondered could northwestern do what stanford did what duke did as these elite you know high profile football basketball institutions they have done it and i don't think there's any reason because the backing is there the belief is there with you and pat fitzgerald that it it definitely can be done again two quick things uh preseason number one is going to be or should be michigan state um it's essentially the core group minus nick ward uh, that you saw last season. What are your thoughts on what they bring back and whether or not they can be a team that can get back to the Final Four? 
I mean, I absolutely. I mean, I think the ranking going into the season is warranted. Uh, it's a Final Four team that brings most of their squad back, headed by Cassius Winston. I mean, I'm just, I'm a huge admirer of what he's been able to do on the college level. Uh, he's a great leader. He's a winner. When you have someone at that position who has the ball, who's your floor general, who makes everybody better, and it seems like when they get in big situations, tough games, tight moments, he always rises and, and finds a way to make a play get it done you mix that in with you know what what they have on the you know Langford coming back on the wings they didn't have him this year with injury terrific player Xavier Tillman has emerged as an outstanding front court guy there I thought their freshman class last year as the season went along those guys got better and better and then you throw in there the experience and the knowledge and, and everything the coaches on his staff brings uh, there's no reason why they can't be a team that's going to be in the hunt you know, not only for a Big Ten championship, but to, to cut down the nets uh, next next April. And I've always said it's, I mean, they're, they've been the sander in this league, you know, ever since I've been here, but even before, over the past 20 years or so, uh, what Coach Izzo's done, the way his teams play, uh, the, the the success they've had, the type of players, the, the commitment to winning, uh, to me, that's the standard that we're all shooting for in this conference. And as as someone who has to compete against them, I I, I so admire what they do, and this could end up being one of their better teams. So it'll be exciting to see what they can do. And lastly, Chris, uh, at March Madness this week, we're doing our team of the decade, and we are starting the decade being 2010 to 2020, okay, and the programs of the decade, I should say, um, and a compilation of starting fives. And what that means is, believe it or not, it will be 10 years <laughs> in April since wow. Duke beat Butler in Indianapolis in that epic final. Gordon <laughs> Hayward shot, just missed. Otherwise, uh, who knows what that, the roof might have been blown off there. Uh, and Lucas Oil in Indianapolis. If you can think back, first of all, it's crazy to think it's going to be 10 years. But what do you remember most about that moment after uh, Zubek was at the line, Brian Zubek, <laughs> and then Hayward? Uh, had a chance to potentially win it with that uh, long, long three-pointer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a special night, obviously, in my life. And that was a special team, that 2010 Duke team and the Butler team. To me, you know, when you look at the guys that played in that game, those two starting fives, you know, to me it was the epitome of what college basketball is all about. You had two veteran teams both incredibly well coached two teams that were blue collar that played for each other um you know that baller team was so good i mean at the time i don't think we realized how much talent they had you know shelvin mack and gordon hayward two outstanding nba players matt howard who for just from a college i know he's been an accomplished european guy but for college i mean he was as good a post player as you're, you're going to see in the country and then our group you know with john shire nolan smith kyle singler brian zubek lance thomas you know, all juniors and seniors, guys that had, had gone through it for three and four years and, and found their way to that game. And you're playing right in Butler's backyard. Um, you know, it's it's crazy to think about. But as the shot was in the air, you know, part of me, it felt like the shot was in the air for about an hour. It was in slow motion. And, you know, you're just thinking, man, there was such a team of destiny. And it was almost like the shot was going to go in. And, and when it bounced off to, to have that feeling of being national champion, Champions, especially with the group that we were. I mean, I had a chance. I was lucky to be able to do it twice in 2001 with Jason Williams and Boozer and Dunleavy and Battier. 
and then to do it again in 10 with those guys. And, you know, we weren't really expected to be there that year. So that journey was really fun uh, to be able to, to win it all in Indianapolis, to beat that Butler team. Uh, it'll be a moment in my life that I'll never forget. And it's crazy to think it was 10 years, and uh, but it was a special night. And uh, it, it's always, you, you do this whole thing with the dream of winning the national championship and to be able to, to be up on that platform and, and hear one shining moment and be a part of a group that does it. You know, those are moments you never forget. Awesome, Chris. Have a great trip to France and Italy. All right. Thanks, Andy. Always great to be in the show. And that's a wrap on this week's edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. Appreciate you listening. And of course, you can go to wherever you find podcasts to download our podcast, March Madness 365, and on all our social media platforms at March Madness and NCAA.com. Thanks for listening.